This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Stackery and CBT Nuggets. This week, I chat with Alexa Abbas about serverless and machine learning. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 96. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm joined by Alexa Abbas. Hey, Alexa, thanks for joining me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. So you are a machine learning engineer at WISE um, and also the founder of Datastack TV. So I'd love it if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your background um, and what you do at WISE and, and what Datastack TV is all about. Yeah. So as you said, I'm a machine learning engineer at WISE. So WISE is an international money transfer service. Um, we are aiming for really transparent fees and really low fees uh, compared to banks. Um, so at WISE, I'm basically designing, man maintaining, and developing the machine learning platform, which serves data scientists and analysts so they can uh, train their models and deploy your model their models um, easily. Datastack TV is basically, it's a video service or a video platform for data engineers. So we create bite-sized videos, educational videos for data engineers. Um, we mostly cover um, open source topics because mm -hmm. um, we noticed that some of the open source tools in the data engineering world are quite underserved in terms of educational content. Right. So yeah, we create videos about those. Awesome. And then what about your background? Um, so I actually worked as a data engineer and machine learning engineer. So I've always been a data engineer or machine learning engineer in terms of roles. Um, yeah, I also worked for a, for a small amount of time. I worked as a, as a data scientist as well. Uh, in terms of education, I did a big data engineering master's, but actually my bachelor is economics, so quite a mix. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always always good to have a, a ton of experience in that yeah. diverse perspective. So, um, well, listen, I'm super excited to have you here because machine learning is one of those things where like it's it's it probably is more of a buzzword I think to a lot of mm. people where every uh, every startup puts it in their pitch deck right like oh we're doing machine learning yeah. and, and artificial <laughs> intelligence stuff like that um, but I think it's important to understand one what exactly it is um, because mm -hmm. I think there's a huge confusion there in terms of what we think of uh, as machine learning and and maybe we think it's more advanced than it is sometimes is I think there's like sort of lower versions of machine learning that can be can be very helpful. Um, and obviously, this being a serverless podcast, I've heard you uh, speak a number of times about um, the work that you've done with machine learning and, and some experiments you've done with uh, with serverless there. So I'd love to just pick your brain about that and just sort of like, you know, See if we can uh, educate the users here on what exactly you know machine learning is, how people are using it, and and sort of uh, where it fits in with serverless and 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 some of the use cases and things like that. So, um, first of all, I think one of the, the the important things to start with, anyways, is this uh, is this idea of ML ops. So, can you explain mm -hmm. what ML ops is? Yeah, sure. Um, so, really short, ML ops is DevOps for machine learning. Um, so I guess, you know, um, like with, with traditional software engineering projects, like you have a streamlined process, you can release like really often, really quickly, because you already have all these best practices that right. um, all these traditional software engineering projects implement. Like in machine learning, this is 
uh, is still in a quite early stage, and MLOps is in a quite early stage. But what we trying, what we try to do in MLOps is we try to streamline machine learning projects as well as traditional software engineering projects are streamlined. So. And data scientists can uh, train uh, models um, really easily, and they don't. They can release models really um, frequently and really easily into production. So MLOps is all about streamlining the whole data science workflow, basically. Um, and I guess it, it's good to understand what the data science workflow is. Um, right. So yeah, I talk. I talk a bit about that as well. Uh, so. Before actually starting um, any machine learning project, like the, the first phase is an experimentation phase, uh, where like it's a really iterative process when data scientists are looking at the data, they are trying to find features, and they are also training um, many different models. They are doing like architecture search, trying different architectures, trying different hyperparameter settings with those models. So it's a really iterative process of trying many models, many features. And um, yeah, and then by the end, they probably find a model that they like and they hit the benchmark that they were looking for. And then they are ready to release that model into production. And this usually looks like, um, so sometimes they use shadow models in the beginning to check if if the results are um, as expected in production as well, and mm -hmm. then they actually release into production. So basically MLOps tries to create the infrastructure and the processes that streamline this whole process. Yeah, right. the, the, the whole life cycle, yeah. Right, so so the question I have is, so if you're, a, if you're an ML engineer or you're working on these models and you're going through these iterations and stuff, so now you have this, you're ready to release it to production, so why do you need something like an ML ops pipeline? Why, why can't you just you know, move that into production? Like, where's the barrier there? Hmm. Well, um, I guess, I mean, to be honest, like the, the thing is they shouldn't be a barrier. Like right now, like that's the whole thing goal of MLOps, like they shouldn't feel that they need to do any manual like model artifact copying or anything like that. They just, I don't know, press a button and they can release the production. So that's what MLOps is about, really. Um, and we can version models, we can version the data, things like that, and we can create like um, reproducible experiments. So I guess right now, I think many bits in this whole life cycle is really manual and that could be automated. Like for example, releasing to production, um, sometimes it's a manual thing. You just copy a model artifact to a production bucket or whatever. So sometimes, right. yeah, we would like to automate all these things, yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. So then in terms of actually you know, sort of implementing this stuff because we hear all the time about CI/CD, right? If we're talking about yeah. DevOps, we know that w there's all these tools that are being built um, uh, and services that are being launched that allow us to quickly move uh, code through, you know, through some process and get it mm. into production. So, are there similar tools for like deploying models and things like that? Um, well, I think the space is quite crowded. It's getting more and more crowded. I think there are many, um, so there are the cloud providers who are trying to create tools that, um, that help uh, these processes. And there are also many third-party platforms that are trying to create the ML platform that everybody uses. So right. I think there is no like go-to thing that everybody uses. So there, I think there is many tools that we can use. Um, some examples like, for example, TensorFlow is a really popular machine learning library, right. but TensorFlow itself, it, it has, uh, they created 
um, a package on top of TensorFlow, which is called TFX, TensorFlow Extended, which mm -hmm. is exactly for streamlining these um, this process and serving uh, models easily. So, yeah, so I would say TFX is a really good example. There are there is Kubeflow, um, which is uh, a machine learning toolkit for Kubernetes. Uh, there are I think there are many like custom implementations mm. um, in in house in many companies. Uh, they create their own machine learning platforms and their own model serving API things like that. Um, yeah. And like the cloud providers uh, on AWS, we have SageMaker. They are trying to cover many, many parts of the of the data science lifecycle. And on Google Cloud, we have AI platform, which is really really similar to SageMaker. Right, right. And and what are you what are you doing at at Wise? Are you using one of those tools? Or are you building something custom? Yeah, it's a mix actually. Uh, we have some custom bits. We have a custom. Um, API, uh, serving API for serving models. Um, but for model training, um, we are using many things. We are using SageMaker notebooks, and uh, we are also experimenting with SageMaker endpoints, which are actually serverless model serving endpoints. Um, and we are also using EMR for model training and data preparation. So some Spark-based things, uh, a bit more traditional type of model training. Yeah, so it's it's quite a mix. Right, right. So I am um, I am not well versed in machine learning. Like I know just enough to be dangerous. Mm. Um, and, uh, and and so I think that what would be really interesting, at least for me, and hopefully it'd be interesting to listeners as well, is just sort of talk about some of these standard tools. So you you mentioned things like uh, TensorFlow, you know, and then you know, uh, Kubeflow, which I guess is sort of that end to end piece of it. But like, yes, if you're like just how how do you start? Like, how do you go from I guess building and training a model to then sort of productizing it and 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 getting that out? Like, what's that whole workflow look like? Mm -hmm. So actually, the the data science workflow I mentioned, like the the first bit is that experimentation, which right. which is. Uh, really iterative, uh, really free. So you just try to find a good model. And then uh, when you when you found a good model architecture, then and, and you know that you are going to receive new data, um, let's say, I don't know, every day or whatever, mm -hmm. every week, um, then you need to build out a retraining pipeline. And that is, I think, um, what the productionization of a model uh, really means, like that you can build a retraining pipeline which can automatically pick up new data and then prepare that new data, retrain the model on that new data and release that model into production automatically. Right. So I think that that means productionization really. Right, yeah, and 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 so by by being able to sort of build and train a model and then having mm -hmm. that process where um you know you're getting that feedback back in and and is that something where like you're uh you're just taking that data and assuming that that is right and fits in the model or is there like an ongoing testing process is there like supervised learning i know that's a buzzword i'm not even sure what it means <laughs> um but like those I, I mean what what's what types of things go into that retraining of the model mm -hmm. is it something that is just automatic or is it something where you need sort of constant um uh, babysitting is probably the wrong word but somebody to sort of be monitoring that on a regular basis so yeah, monitoring monitoring is uh, definitely necessary. Like, especially, um, I think you know when you trained your model and 
you, you shouldn't release automatically in production just because you trained a new data. Like, as I mentioned, this shadow model thing a bit, mm -hmm. like usually um, after you retrain the model in this retraining um, pipeline, then you release that model into shadow mode and then you will serve that model in parallel to your actual produ production model. And then you will check the results from your new model against your production model. And that's a manual thing you need to, or maybe you can automate that as well, actually. Right. But so if, if it performs like, it is, if it is comparable with your production model or if it's even better, then you will replace it. So, and also, yeah, like in terms of the data quality in the beginning, like you should definitely monitor that. And I think that's quite custom, like really depends on what kind of data you work with. Um, so yeah, it's really important to test your data. Um, I mean, it's like, there are many, like this space is also quite crowded. Like there are many um, tools that you can use to monitor your um, distribution of your data and uh, see that the new data is actually um, corresponds to your already existing data set. So yeah, there are many bits that you can monitor in this whole retraining pipeline and you should monitor. Right. Um, yeah, and, and so like I think of, some machine learning, um, you know, sort of like use cases of like sentiment analysis, for example, mm -hmm. like looking at, uh, you know, looking at tweets or looking at, you know, customer service um, conversations and trying to rate those things. So when you say sort of like monitoring or, or you know, running them against a shadow model, is that something where, I mean, how, how do you gauge what's better, right? So if you've got a shadow, like, I mean, what's the success metric there mm. as to say that like, you know, X number were classified as positive versus negative sentiment or like where, like, is that something that requires human review or like some sort of sampling for you to kind of figure out um, the, the quality of the, the success of those models? Yeah, so actually I think that, that really depends on the use case. Like for example, um, when you are trying to catch like fraudsters, like your false positive rate and true positive rate, these are really important. Like, mm. uh, like if your true positive rate is higher, that means, oh, you are catching more fraudsters. But let's say your new model with your new, new model, also the false positive rate is higher, which means that you are catching people, more people who are actually not fraudsters, but right. um, you have more work because I guess like that's a manual process to actually check those people. So I think it, it really depends on the use case. Right, right. And and you also said that there are sort of, you know, the market's a little bit flooded. And, and I mean, mm. I know of SageMaker. And then, of course, there's all these tools like, um, uh, what's it called, recognition, like a bunch of things at AWS. And then, uh, you know, Google has a whole bunch of like the Vision API and some yeah. of these things. And the, uh, Watson's uh, natural language processing um, over at IBM and some of these things. So there's all these different tools that are like just available via an API, um, mm -hmm. which is super simple, like and, and great for people like me that don't want to get into building TensorFlow models and things like that. So is there a is there a, an advantage to to building your own models beyond those things like or are we getting to a point where with things like I mean again I know SageMaker has a whole library of models that are already built for you and things like that. So are we getting to a point where some of these models are just good enough off the shelf or do we really still need is and and I know there are probably some custom things, but do we still really need to be building our own models around that stuff? Mm. So to be honest, I think most of the data scientists, they are using off-the-shelf models, like maybe not the serverless API type of models that right. uh, yep. Google um, has, but like 
just off the shelf TensorFlow models or like SageMaker, they have these built-in containers for some really popular model architectures like XGBoost. And um, I think most of the people, they don't tweak these. Um, I mean, as far as I know, I think um, they, they just use them out of the box and they really try to tweak the data instead, the data that they have, mm -hmm. and, and try to help these off-the-shelf models with higher and higher quality data. So, so shape the data to fit the model as opposed to the model to fit the data. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <It's> a... Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, so you you are... don't actually have have to know like you don't have to know how those models work exactly. Like as long right. as you know like what the input should be and what output you expect, then I think yeah. you're good to go. Yeah. 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 Well, I still think that there's probably a lot of value in tuning the models though to, you know, sort of what you know against your particular data sets. Right? Yeah. Right. But also there are, you know, services for, for hyperparameter tuning. Like mm. I think it, there, there are services even for like neural uh, architecture search where they are, like, they try a lot of different architectures for your data specifically. And then they will tell you what is the best model architecture that you should use and same for the hyperparameter search. So right. yeah, so these, these can be automated as well. Yeah, very cool. Hey everyone, I wanted to take a minute to thank our sponsor Stackery and tell you about their latest tool, Stack.new. Stack.new helps visualize and audit AWS CloudFormation templates against different aspects of AWS's well-architected framework so that you can make sure you're following all the best practices. All you need to do is provide a public GitHub template link or browse through a bunch of previously shared templates. You'll then get back assessments of IAM role scoping, encryption configuration, and a whole lot more, along with links to relevant guides to help make your infrastructure more reliable and secure. So visit stack.new today, give it a try, and make sure you share your feedback with the Stackery team. So if you are, um, if you are hosting your own version of this. And I mean, maybe go back to the ML ops piece of this, right? So mm -hmm. um, I would assume that a data scientist doesn't want to be responsible for maintaining the servers or the virtual machines or right. whatever it is that it's running on, right? So um, so you want to have this workflow where you can get uh, your models trained, you can get them into production, and then you can run them through this loop you talked about and be able to sort of tweak them and uh, and and uh, and continue to retrain them uh, as things yes. go through. So, so on the other side of that wall, if we want to put it that way, you have your sort of ops people that are that are running this stuff. Is there is there something specific that ops people need to know? Like, how much do they need to know about? Um, you know, ML as opposed to, I mean, I, the data scientists, hopefully more, they know more, um, but yeah. in terms of running it, like what, what, what do they need to know about it? Or is it just a matter of, you know, keeping a server up and running? Well, I think, um, so I think the, the machine learning pipelines are not yet as standardized as a traditional software engineering pipeline. So mm -hmm. I would say that you have to have some knowledge of machine learning or at least some understanding of how this life cycle works. Like you yeah. don't actually need to know about like research and uh, and things like that, but you need to know how this whole life cycle works in order to work as a, as an ops person who can automate this. But I think like the software engineering skills and um, like DevOps skills are are the base, and then you can just build this knowledge on top of that. So I think it's actually quite easy to to pick this up. Yeah, 
Okay. And and what about, I mean, you mentioned this idea of a lot of data scientists aren't actually writing the models. They're just mm. using sort of the, pre, the pre-configured models. So I guess that begs the question, how much does a... Um, just a regular person. So I'm, let's say I'm just a regular developer and I say, I want to start building, um, uh, you know, machine learning tools. Um, is it as easy as just pulling a model off the shelf and, and then just, you know, learning a little bit more about it? Like how, how much can the average person do with some of these tools out of the box? So I think most of the time it's that easy because usually the use cases that like someone tries to tackle, those are not like super edge cases. So like for those use cases, there are already models which perform really well. Um, Like, especially if you're talking about like, um, I don't know, supervised learning on tabular data. um, It's, I think you can definitely find models that will perform really well out uh, of the shelf on, on those type of data sets. Right. And if you were if you were advising somebody who wanted to get started, I mean, because I think the I think where it might come down to is going to be things like pricing. Um, mm. Like if you're using Vision API and you're maybe limited on your quota and then you yeah. can, uh, you know, if you're paying however many cents per, you know, uh, I guess, lookup or or uh, or inference. Um, that that can get really expensive as opposed to potentially running your own model on on something else. But yes. um, how would how would you suggest that somebody you know get started? Would you would you point them at the APIs or would you would you want to get them up and running on TensorFlow or something like that? So I think actually for a developer just using an API would be super easy. Like those APIs are I think. Um, yeah, so getting started with those APIs just to understand the concepts are really useful. But um, I think um, getting started with, with TensorFlow itself or just Keras, um, it's um, I, I definitely I would recommend that. Like, or just use Scikit-Learn, which is a more like more basic package for mm-hmm. for more basic machine learning. <laughs> right. um, so those those are really good starting points, and you know there are so many tutorials to get to get started with. And if you have an idea of what you would like to build, then I think uh, you will definitely find tutorials which are similar to your own use case, and you can just use those to to build your custom uh, pipeline uh, or model. So yeah, I would say I would definitely for developers I would definitely recommend jumping into TensorFlow or Scikit-Learn or XGBoost or things like that. Right, right. And and how many of these models uh, like exist? I mean, are we talking about, like there's 20 different models or are we talking like there's 20,000 models? Well, I think, well, good question. I think we are more <laughs> towards today, <laughs> maybe not 20,000, but definitely many thousands, I think. Okay. Yeah. So, but there are, you know, popular models that most of the people use. And I think there are maybe um, 50 or 100 models that are the most popular and, and most companies use them. And you are probably fine just using those for any use case or most of the use cases. Right. Now, and speaking of use cases, so again, I, I try to think of uh, of use cases for machine learning and, and you know, whether it's classifying movies into genres or sentiment analysis, like I said, or, um, you know, maybe trying to classify news stories, things like that. Fraud detection, you mentioned, those are all great use cases. Um, but what are, but I know you've worked on a bunch of projects. So mm-hmm. what are some of the sort of projects that you've done and what were the use cases that were, were being solved there? Because I, I find these to be really interesting. Yeah. So I think a a nice project that I worked on was a project with Lush, which is a cosmetics company. They manufacture like soaps and bath bombs, and they have this nice mission that they would like to eliminate um, 
packaging from their shops. Right. So they asked us, like when I worked at the Datatonic, um, we worked on a small project with them. We created, they asked us to create an image recognition model uh, to train one and then create a retraining pipeline that they can use afterwards. Um, so they provided us with um, many hundred thousand images uh, of their of their products and they made photos from different angles with different lightings and all that. So really high quality image data set of mm -hmm. all their products. And then we used... Um, a mobile net model because um, they wanted this model to be built in into their mobile application. So when users actually use this model, they download it with their mobile application and then they created a service called LushLens, uh, mm -hmm. which you can use from within their app. And then people just people can just scan the products and they can see the ingredients and um, you know how to use guides and things like that. So this is how they are trying to eliminate the all kinds of packaging from their shops that they don't actually need to put the papers there or put packaging uh, with ingredient, ingredients and things like that. And in terms of what we did on the technical side, so as I mentioned, we used a mobile net model because um, we needed to quantize the model in order to put it on a mobile device. Mm -hmm. And we used a TF Lite in, to do this. TF Lite is, is uh, specifically for um, models that you want to run on an edge device like a mobile phone so that that was already a constraint so this is how we picked the model i think back then like there were only a few model architectures supported mm -hmm. by tf Lite, and um i think there were only two maybe so we picked mobile net because it it had a smaller size um and then in terms of the retraining, uh, so we automated the whole uh, workflow with Cloud Composer on Google Cloud, which is a managed version of Apache Airflow, the open mm -hmm. source scheduling package. Um, the training happened on AI platform, which is Google Cloud's SageMaker. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, and what else? Yeah, we also had like an image preprocessing step just before the training, uh, which happened on Dataflow, uh, which is an auto-scaling data processing service uh, on Google Cloud. And yeah, and after we trained the model, we just saved the the model art artifact um, on a in a bucket. And then I think we also yeah monitored the performance of the model, and if it was uh, good enough, then we just shipped the model to developers who actually they manually updated the model file that went into the application that people can download. So we didn't really see if they use any like shadow model thing or anything like that. Right, right. And, and I and I think that is such a cool use case, because if I'm if I'm hearing you right, they were just like a bar of soap or something like that, that with no packaging, no nothing. And you just hold your mobile phone camera up to it or it, look, it, it looks at it, determines which mm. particular product is, gives you all that. So no QR codes, no barcodes, none of that stuff. How did they ring them up, though? Do you know how that process worked? Did the, the employees just have to know what they were? Or did the employees use the app as well to figure out what they were filling <laughs> so, people for? A uh, good question. So I think they wanted the employees as well to use to use nice. the app. Yeah. But when the app was wrong, then I don't know what happened. <laughs> you don't know what they do. Just yeah. uh, give them a discount on it or something like yeah. that. Um, that's no, that's that's awesome. So yeah, I mean, and that's that the 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 thing you mentioned there about uh, it was Tensor Tensor Light was it called? TF Light, um, yeah. A TF Light, yes. Uh, Tensor Flow Light, so like or TF Light. But basically, that idea of of being able to really package a model 
um, and get it to be super small. Like you yeah. said, you said edge devices, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking serverless compute at the edge. I'm thinking Lambda functions. I'm thinking other ways that if you could get your model small enough and packaged, mm. um, you know, that you could you could run it. Um, but that'd be a pretty cool, pretty cool way to do inference, um, you know, right, you know, because again, if you're even if you're using edge devices, if you're on an edge network or something like that, if you could do that uh, at the edge, that would be uh, that'd be a pretty fast response time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Hey, everyone, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, CBT Nuggets. Now, I've been building applications in the cloud for well over a decade now, but the pace of innovation is so fast that IT professionals and developers like me have to constantly be learning new skills and new services just to keep up with everything. Now, I know for me, the one-off blog post or YouTube video can be helpful to get started, but if I really want to upskill, nothing compares to professional training from experts you can trust. With CBT Nuggets, I have access to over 400 courses and 4,000 hours of training. There's courses on everything from building serverless applications with Lambda and DynamoDB to certification-focused training for AWS, Microsoft, Linux, and more. Plus, there are virtual labs that let you practice your skills as you're learning them, which is critical for retention. With a completely in-house training team, they're adding 40 hours of content every week. And best of all, they have accountability coaching that lets you talk to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan, set goals, and then check in with you to keep you accountable. Now, I love this service because it's so easy to start an online course and then get sidetracked by everything life throws at us. And finishing a course isn't just personally rewarding, it also ensures you've learned those extra little nuances that'll set you up for success. Now, CBT Nuggets has a free learner offer for serverless chat listeners. Sign up with a Google account and you can watch portions of their most popular courses completely free. And as an added bonus, everyone who signs up will be automatically entered into a drawing to win a six-month premium subscription. Start training right away by visiting cbtnuggets.com slash serverless. All right. So, um, what about uh, what about some other stuff that you've done? You've mentioned some things about uh, sort of like um, uh, fraud detection and things like that. Mm. Yeah. So, fraud detection is um, a use case for for Vice. Uh, as I mentioned, Vice um, services international money transfer. Um, one of one of its services. Um, so, obviously, if you are doing uh, or doing anything with money, then um, a fraud use case is. Uh, for sure that you will have. Um, so yeah, I mean, in terms of, I, I don't actually develop models uh, advice, so I don't know actually what models they use. I know that they use H2O, which is a Spark-based um, library mm -hmm. that you can use for model training. Um, I think it's quite an advanced library, but I haven't used it myself too much. Um, so I cannot talk about that. Uh, too much, but in terms of the workflow, like it's quite similar. Like they also have, we also have Airflow um, to schedule the retraining uh, of of the models, mm -hmm. and they use EMR for data preparation. So uh, quite similar to Dataflow in a sense, like you know, uh, a Spark based um, auto scaling cluster that processes the data and. Then they train the models on EMR as well, but using this H2O library. Um, and then in the end, uh, when they are happy with the model, like we have this um, tool that they can use for uh, releasing shadow models in production. And then if they are satisfied with the performance of a model that they can actually release into production. And at WISE, we have a custom um, microservice with a custom API for, for serving models. 
Right, right. And that sounds like uh, you need a really good ML ops flow to make all that stuff work because mm. um, you just have a lot of a lot of a lot of moving parts there, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, also, I think we have many bits that could be improved. Like I think there are many bits that uh, still a bit manual and not like streamlined enough. So, but I think most of the companies struggle with the same thing. Uh, right. it's just, we, we don't yet have those best practices that, uh, we can implement. So many people try many different things and then, um, yeah, so I think it's still a work in progress. Right. Right. And I'm curious if your economics background helps at all with the fraud and the money laundering stuff Does it come <laughs> in at all. No. <laughs> no. All right. Um, so, what about um, uh, you? You worked on another data engineering product uh, project for Vodafone, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was a data engineering project purely. So we didn't do any machine learning. Um, well, uh, Vodafone has their own like Google Analytics um, library that they use in all their websites and mobile apps and things like that, and that um, sends uh, clickstream data to a server uh, in a Google Cloud Platform project. And we consume the data in a streaming manner from Dataflow. So basically the project was really about processing this data by writing an Apache Beam pipeline, uh, which was always on and always expected mm -hmm. messages to come in. And then we dumped all the data into BigQuery tables, um, which is data warehouse in Google Cloud. And then these BigQuery tables powered some of the dashboards that they use to, to monitor the uptime and I don't know, different metrics tricks uh, for their websites and mobile apps. Right. But that, but collecting all that data is sort of a, uh, uh, is a good, uh, is a good source for doing machine learning on top of that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think they, they already had some of some use cases in mind. Um, I'm not sure if, we, if, if they actually done those or not, but yeah, it's a really good base for machine learning. What we collected the, the data there in BigQuery, because that's it. That is an analytical data warehouse. So some right. analysts can already, um, start and explore the data as a first step of, of a machine learning process. Right. I would think like anomaly detection and, mm. and things like that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, all right. Well, so let's let's go on uh, and talk about serverless a little bit more because I know um, I saw you I saw you do a talk um, where you were you ran some experiments with serverless, mm -hmm. um, and so I'm just kind of curious, like where where are the limitations that you see? And I know that they're continue. I mean, we now have EFS integration, and we've got 10 gigs of of uh, memory for Lambda functions. I, you've got Cloud Run, which I don't know how much you could do with that, but like, like where are still some of the limitations for um, running machine learning in a serverless way? I guess. Mm -hmm. So I think actually from this data science lifecycle, like many bits, like. There are like cloud providers offer a lot of serverless options, like for um, data preparation, there is Dataflow, which is I think kind of like a serverless um, data processing service. Mm -hmm. So you can use that for, for data processing, for model training, there is already um, SageMaker and AI platform, which are kind of uh, serverless because you don't actually need to provision these clusters that you train your models on. Um, and for model serving, like in SageMaker, there are the serverless model endpoints that you can deploy. Um, so there are many options, I think, for serverless in the machine learning lifecycle. Um, in my experience, many times it's a cost thing. Like for example, at um, Wise, like we have this custom um, 
model serving API where we serve all our models. And if we would use SageMaker endpoints, I think a single SageMaker endpoint is about $50 per month. Like that's mm -hmm. the minimum price and that's for a single model and a single endpoint. And if you have thousands of models, then your price can go up really quickly or maybe right. not thousands, but hundreds of models, yeah. then your price can go up pretty quickly. So I think, yeah, I, like in my experience, like um, limitation could be just price. <laughs> right. But in terms, yeah, but in terms of, um, so I think, for example, if if I compare data flow with, um, with uh, a Spark cluster that you provision yourself, um, then I would definitely go to go with Dataflow. I think it's it's just much easier, and maybe like cost wise as well, you might um, you might be better off. I, I'm not sure, but um, but in terms of like um, um, comfort and developer experience, it's a much better experience. Right, right. And so we talked a little bit about TF Lite there, and mm. is that something possible where? Um, you know, maybe the training piece of it, running that on functions as a service or something like that, maybe isn't the the most efficient or cost effective way to do that. But what about running um, running models or running inference on something like a Lambda function or a Google Cloud function or an Azure function or something like that? Mm -hmm. um, is it possible to package those models in a way that's small enough that you could you could do that type of workload? I think so. Yeah, I think you can definitely make inference using a Lambda function. Um, but in terms of model training, I think that's not a, maybe they were already experiments for, I'm sure, I'm sure they were, <laughs> but like, I think it's not the kind of workload that would fit for, for Lambda functions. You know, that's right. a, a typical, like parallelizable, really large scale, um, uh, workloads where like, you know, the map reduce type of, of data processing workloads. I think those right. are not necessarily fit for Lambda functions. Um, so I think for model training and data preparation, maybe those are not the best options, but uh, for model inference, definitely. And I think there are many examples using Lambda functions as um, for inference. All right. Now, do you think that, because um, this is always something where I find with serverless, and I know you're more of a data, uh, you know, more of a data scientist, uh, you know, M ML expert. Um, but I look at serverless, and I I question whether or not it needs to handle some of these things. Like, mm -hmm. is there enough? I mean, especially with some of the endpoints that are out there now. You know, we talked about the Vision API and and some of the other NLP things. Um, you know, is are we putting in too much effort? maybe to try to make serverless be able to handle these things? like, um, Or is it just something where there's a really good way to handle these by hosting your... I mean, even if you're doing SageMaker, maybe not SageMaker endpoints, but just running SageMaker machines to do it or whatever, uh, yeah. is that, you know, are we trying too hard to squeeze some of these things into a serverless environment? Well, um, I don't know. I think I, like, as a developer, I definitely prefer the more managed, managed versions of, right. of these products. So like... The less I need to bother with, oh, my cluster died and I re need to rebuild the cluster things, then I think, and I think serverless can definitely solve that. Um, uh, I, I would definitely prefer the more managed version. Maybe not serverless because for some of the use cases or some of the bits from the lifecycle, serverless is not the best fit, but like a managed product is definitely something that I prefer over a non-managed product. <laughs> and so, and uh, so, I, I guess one last question for you here, because yeah. this is something that always interests me. Like, 
I just there are relevant things that we need machine learning for. I mean, I think the fraud detection is a is a is a hugely important one. Mm. Uh, sentiment analysis again. Some of those other things are maybe I don't know. I shouldn't call them toy things, but personalization and some of those other things. Like mm. they're all really great things to have. Um, and it seems like you can't build an application now without somebody wanting some piece of that machine learning in there. Um, so do you do you see that is sort of where we are going? Where in the future, we're just going to have more of these APIs. I mean, AWS, because I'm more familiar with the AWS ecosystem, but they have like personalize and they have connect and they have all these other services. They have the recommendation engine thing. Like they, you know, all the uh, all these different services, uh, Lex or whatever that will read text, you know, natural language processing yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, is that where we're moving to just all these pre-trained canned products that I can just access via an API? Or do you think that if you're somebody getting started and you really want to get into the uh, into the ML world, that you should start diving into the TensorFlows and, and some of those mm. other things? So I think if you if you are building an app and your goal is not to become an ML engineer or a data scientist, then these like canned um models are really useful because you can have a really good recommendation engine in your product. You could have really good personalization engine in your product, things like that. And uh, so those are, I, I think, really useful. And um, yeah, they are, they, you don't need to know any machine learning in order to use them. Uh, so I think we definitely go into that direction because like most of the companies uh, won't hire data scientists just to train a recommender model. I think it's it's just easier to use an API endpoint that is already right. really good. Um, so I think, yeah, we are definitely heading into the direction. But if you are someone who wants to become a data scientist or wants to be more involved with MLOps or machine learning engineering, then I think jumping into TensorFlow and understand maybe like not not as as we discussed like uh, not like getting into model architectures and things like that but just understanding the workflow and being able to um program a machine learning pipeline from end to end i think that's definitely recommended all right so one last question if you've ever used like the Watson NLP API or the the Google Vision API can you put on your resume that you're a machine learning expert <laughs> well <laughs> If you really want to do that, like I would give it to go. <laughs> like, why not? <laughs> all right, good, good to know. Well, Alexa, thank you so much for for sharing all this information. Again, I, I find uh, I find the use cases here to be um, to be much more complex than maybe some of the surface ones that you you sometimes hear about. So, uh, obviously, machine learning is here to stay. Uh, it sounds like there's yeah. a, a lot of really good opportunities for people to start kind of dabbling in it and and using that without having to become a machine learning expert. Um, but but again, I appreciate your expertise. So if people <laughs> want to find out more about you or more about the things you're working on and Data Stack TV, things like that, how do they do that? So yeah, we have a Twitter page for Data Stack TV. Um, so feel free to follow that. I also have a Twitter page. Feel free to follow me. Uh, account, not page. And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is the Data Stack TV website. So it's just Data Stack TV. Uh, you can go there and you can check out the courses. And also uh, we've created a roadmap for data engineers specifically because there was no good roadmap for data engineers. I definitely recommend checking that out because we listed most of the tools that a, da a data engineer and also machine learning engineer should know about. So if you're inter interested in this, um, 
um, career path, then I would definitely recommend checking that out. So under Data Stack TV's GitHub, there is a roadmap that you can find. Awesome. All right. And that's just like you said, datastack.tv. Uh, yes. I will make sure that we get your Twitter and LinkedIn and GitHub and all that stuff in there. Alexa, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Alexa Abbas for being my guest this week and to our sponsors, Stackery and CBT Nuggets. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 96. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.